The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this passage on page 274 of the Black Pew Bible in front of you, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 and following. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary, and Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushethite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jair or Agim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As we come before you, and as we stand before your word with an open before us, pray that you would give us help in reading, in understanding, in application. You know the hearts of every person in this room. I pray that as the only one who knows every situation that's going on in their lives, every thought, every intention, every motivation, that your word would read us. That by your spirit, you would move through the words of scripture, the words of this sermon that you would invade even the deepest recesses of our hearts. Places where sin hides, that you would reveal it. That you would expose every wicked intention within us, every doubt, every fear, every area of our lives where we refuse to trust. Would you expose it 
this morning as we read and study your word? And then would you take your word and apply it to our lives? That we would see where it fits, where it is bringing to us hope and change and newness of life, where it's bringing to us conviction and drawing us to repentance. Would you give us that this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. I have a job in my home. And it's not one that I really thought about doing whenever I had kids or whenever I became a husband, but it's one that was kind of forced upon me, whether I like it or not. My job is bug squasher. My job is monster chaser. My job is to investigate all the things that go bump in the night. If there is a roach on the ceiling, not that there ever is in our house, but if there was, I'm the one that has to get the vacuum with the long extension. I'm the only one that can tolerate the thunk that it makes when it goes down <laughs> and not go, ugh, right? <laughs> that is my job. To date, just so you know for the record, I have never once squashed a spider that was not a brown recluse. They're all brown recluses. <laughs> Even when the black ones are brown recluses, they're just hiding, right? That's hence the recluse. <laughs> they're all the worst. And I'm the one that has to go investigate. We have a passage in front of us this morning that is filled with monsters. It's filled with big, scary, nasty giants. One of them even has 24 fingers and toes. Ugly, gross, nasty people. These are. Our passage this morning can sometimes maybe feel like a bit of a summary. So you read it, and maybe this would be one of those passages in the Bible that you just sort of move right on past, or you kind of read really fast and don't give much thought to. You all do it. Don't lie. I mean, come on. You get to the genealogies in Scripture, and you're like, I can't pronounce half these names, and you just kind of skim past them. Right? I get it. But this passage is actually causing us to ask, or it will cause us to ask, what is God actually calling you to do? What is he calling you to? When you get to the New Testament and Jesus says to people, you know, come follow me, what is he asking his followers to do? When Jesus appeals to you, come follow me, what, what does that even mean? What am I following him to? Some people go their whole lives attending church, maybe even every Sunday, and they never know the answer to that question. 
And the objective, it seems to them on the surface of the Christian life, is basically just go to church and be good. And it's about the extent of the message that they actually get from any gospel that they ever hear. One of the more famous scenes in David's history is this fight with Goliath. It's so popular, maybe, as a story that it it even has made its way into secular culture. And anytime you see a, a team that is not very good facing a team that is amazing, it's always a David versus Goliath kind of match, right? They kind of pitch it as that. It's, it's a well-known story, but it happens in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and, and David is, is sent to the front lines by his father to tend to his brothers who are in the military. And David has just been, in the previous chapter, he's been anointed king. And as soon as he was anointed king, it says in the text that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. So there were insights, presumably, uh, that he had to, to life that he didn't have before. But he's still very young. And it seems as though his three oldest brothers are the only ones even old enough to fight in the battle. So no telling how young David really was when this happened. But he sent as the heir apparent, the heir to the kingdom... He sent carrying a charcuterie board, essentially, to his brothers. Meats and cheeses he's bringing out to his brothers who are on the front lines of battle against the Philistines. And they're there in the Valley of Elah. And, of course, when he gets there, if you know the story, they aren't fighting the battle at all. In fact, they're, they're standing on one end of you know, the hillside overlooking the valley, and, and the Philistines are on the other hillside, and there in the middle of the valley is this big giant who's like nine feet tall named Goliath, and he's shouting up to the hillsides, and he's saying, hey, you bunch of cowards, if any of you is brave enough to come out here and fight me, if, if he wins, then we'll serve your God. If, if, if we win, you'll serve ours. And he's just, he's just taunting the Israelites, and they're terrified, all of them, to send out anyone you know, in their ranks to go fight Goliath as he's just calling out to them. He wants a duel. So David goes to the front lines, having been anointed king just the chapter before. The spirit is now rushed upon him. He approaches his brothers with his charcuterie board, and he looks at what's going on, and he surveys the scene here with this giant calling out, and he's filled with the Spirit, and he wonders aloud, why are we just standing here? Why isn't anybody going into the valley there and killing this, he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine? Why isn't anyone going out there and just taking care of this guy? He's insulting the armies of the Lord. And of course, they ridicule him and things like that. And here he is, this small fry, and he says, I'll do it. I don't care. I I don't mind. And so he's questioned by Saul, who is the king at the time. He's pulled in and and he's questioned. And he is even, he puts on Saul's armor and it's too big for him. He's he's a little kid. He can't can't wear Saul's armor, a grown man's armor. So he's like, I I can't do any of this. Here, you take the armor. I'll, I'll just go out there by myself. And so he's questioned a little bit more. And, and this is what David tells Saul in 1 Samuel 17, 34-37. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. 
And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it from his, out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. <laughs> Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Of course, you know how that part of the story ends. David takes five stones, but it turns out he only needs one. And he, he puts them in his, his slingshot, and he embeds that stone right in the forehead of Goliath. Goliath falls over, and he cuts off his head with a sword. And the Philistines flee before the Israelites, and the Israelites obviously chase them and win. And so... God's kingdom, represented by God's now king, David, has this tremendous victory over a fierce rival. It's off to a rip-roaring start under David, let's say. But now we come to this passage this morning, here toward the end of the passages of 1 and 2 Samuel, and we've got four battles against four giants. But we've got problems aplenty. It seems that David, the giant killer, is old. And that's a problem. This passage takes place around four different wars, again with this same military, the Philistines, and again the armies of the Lord face these giants that threaten to undo them. And so David goes down to take care of this uncircumcised Philistine as he did the last uncircumcised Philistine. But this time, it's a good bit different. See, David is, how shall we say, past his prime. David is, no doubt, over 40. All right? Can I get an amen from somebody? He's realizing, you got to stretch, David. You can't just go out there like you used to. Things are different. His body started to break down. He started to wear out. He is old. So David is in fighting with this one particular giant named Ishbibanov. And, and the giant is armed with a spear that we're told weighs something in the neighborhood of seven pounds. It didn't fall as hard on my kids this week as I thought it would. And I, I said, you know, go to the bowling alley and pick up one of those seven-pound balls. It's pretty light compared to the 16-pound one, but then try to throw it. See how far you get, right? It, it's heavy. It's pretty heavy. It's about a seven-pound spear, and he's got this brand-new sword, and it's got David's name written on it. Now, does he remember David the giant killer of old? Probably. David's reputation probably precedes him, at this point, but he is aiming to take David out, and you can imagine this sort of playing out almost like a movie where he's going in and he's ready to strike David dead, and at the last moment, David's life is saved by his nephew, Joab's brother, Abishai, who sees David in trouble, and he intervenes and kills the giant. And it's at this point where we got to regroup. The armies call David to them, 
they have a, uh, no pun intended, a come to Jesus meeting right there in the text in verse 17. Look with me, it says, And David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now, as I said last week, you know, and, and earlier, we're coming to the end of the books of First and Second Samuel, and these last few chapters are more than just tack-on stories at the very end of a, of a book. These last few chapters are really closing out the book, and they're summarizing some of the key themes that we've seen so far. And there's a question that's hanging in the air right now from the armies of Israel. And, and the question is this, will God's people survive when David dies? David has been a mighty king. He's fought down Israel's toughest enemies. And the question for, on, on all their minds is, how will we make it when this king perishes? What are we going to do? And you can sense the fear in the voice of the military when they tell David that his death will quench the lamp of Israel. Now, it's the only time in Scripture that that exact phrase is ever used. So it's kind of hard to tell because it's the only time exactly what they mean by it. But sometimes in Scripture, a person's life is referred to as the person's lamp. But if you notice, what they're concerned with is that David's life is the lamp of Israel. So his life is the lamp of the nation. So likely what they mean is that David's, his life, his leadership, his place of authority is the very heartbeat of the nation of Israel. It's the very life of Israel itself. And if he dies then Israel will be effectively leaderless. We'll be aimless. We won't have clear direction. Now remember, this is not chronological, so we're not dealing with a story that follows right on the heels of the one that was before it. So this is at a time, sometime toward the end of David's life, but it's not the end. Solomon is probably, when Solomon takes the throne, he's probably somewhere in his early 20s. And so if this is close to the end of David's life, but not the end, Solomon may be a young teenager at this point, maybe 15 or so, if he's not even a little kid. So there is a fear and a question, how will we ever make it if David is not our leader? How are we going to survive if the man that God has selected and put on the throne dies? David is the giant killer, and Israel is up against Four giants standing before them. And if we don't have him, how can we do it? Well, he's not going to survive if we take him out to battle. So, David, you got to stay home. So now we get three more battles against the Philistines. But this time, of course, David remains home so that he doesn't get hurt. Now, first we're told that Israel prevails as this person named Sibekai. The Hushathite kills the giant named Saph. And then we're told about yet another war with the Philistines there in verse 19. And it says this. Pay really close attention. There was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down 
Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam, which we all know how heavy that is. You see that? He struck down Goliath the Gittite. Anybody see a problem with that? This is probably one of those few passages that's going to stand out to you as, wait, what? I thought back in 1 Samuel 17, I thought David killed Goliath the Gittite and cut off his head. I don't know how long you think people are supposed to live without their head. It's not that long. So how is it that we have Goliath here in the text now again? Well, likely this is a product of a couple of missing words that were in the original copy of 2 Samuel, but have since been lost. And the reason that we know that is because we actually have the same story in another book in Scripture, in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5, and it says this, And there was again war with the Philistines. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So, in, first, or in 2 Samuel, we're likely missing the original words, Lami, the brother of, that would have cleared things up for us right there on the surface reading. But, thankfully, it's preserved in 1 Chronicles, so we don't have to fret. The point is, Goliath's already dead. His little brother, who seems to be not so little, rises up behind him, whose spear also has the shaft of a weaver's beam, and he rises up to fight against the, God's people, and he too is struck down. And finally, we get the last one in verses 20 to 22. And there was again war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, I know what some might be thinking. Maybe. Giants? Really? Are we really believing in giants? Do we really take that as real, that that's exactly what they mean? Giants? When they say giants, they mean giants? When they say six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, do they really mean that? Yeah. Now, by all accounts, Goliath was something around the height of nine feet. The tallest person in modern history that we know of was eight foot, 11 inches tall. Now, that was, he was American as well. That was in the 1900s. Now, couple that with the fact that we're taller now than we even used to be, right? So likely, average height of a man, maybe in this day, being somewhere between 5'6 and 5'8", Couple that against a person who's nine feet tall, and you got problems. Those are bona fide, genuine giants. Obviously, this one with some physical deformity that leaves him with six fingers and toes on each hand and foot. Now, if moms, you think you have a hard time finding shoes for your kid, imagine you got this guy, all right? 
going to be a little bit more difficult. But this makes four giants in total in these passages that are struck down by Israel. The first and last are killed by David's nephews, and then the two in the middle are killed by regular members of Israel's army. Now that question that was hanging in the air in this passage, what's going to happen to God's people when the day comes and David is gone? And what do we get by the time we get to the end of this passage? The answer is, you understand, Israel, that the slaying of giants wasn't David to begin with. If you think that it was David out on the battlefield, mustering up his courage, taking his slingshot with his impeccable aim and hitting Goliath right square in the middle of the forehead, and you think that all of that was his own human wisdom, insight, understanding, you have another thing coming. David doesn't even believe that. Remember when David went into battle with the original giant in the valley of Elah many, many years prior to this story. He walked into the camp of the Israelites with the Spirit of God on him and with a very important message about this upcoming fight. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This message that David comes with couldn't come at a better time for Israel either because if you go all the way back before that in the story, Israel has been having a very hard time of it, let's say. Their military strategy is haphazard at best. They tried, even on one occasion, all the way back at the beginning of the story in chapter 4, they're losing to the Philistines, and they thought to themselves, I know what we'll do. We'll go get the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll bring it out on the battlefield. If the Lord is with us, surely He won't let us lose, will He? But then God reminded them in that story, He is no one's good luck charm. He's not someone that you can just rub the right, right way or say the right words and all of a sudden he shows up in your favor and he's there for you to win the battles. That's not how it works. He's not a lucky charm. So the Ark of the Covenant is captured and it also doesn't go so well for the Philistines out in captivity, does it? They end up sending it back. And once they get the Ark back, they're like, look, enough of this. They go to Samuel and they say, hey, Samuel, we want a king like the rest of the nations because they thought, look, if we have our own big, tall, strong, strapping giant in our favor, then we might actually win these battles and we won't lose them to the Philistines all the time. But in the process of doing that, they reject God as king over them and they ask for a king like all the rest of the nations have. So they got Saul. Ironically, Saul's name literally means you asked for it. So he's big, he's tall, and when he's selected as king, they go, where's Saul? We selected him as king, where'd he go? And they find him hiding out in the baggage. He's a coward. He has no real desire either to follow the Lord which leads Israel into more depravity and into more rebellion. And so then about that time, 
along comes this little runt, 10 or 15 years old, maybe a little bit cocky, just a little bit, younger than the rest of his brothers. But the difference with David is it's one whose heart is soft. Now, David made terrible mistakes that the Bible is very honest about. Awful, awful, inexcusable mistakes. Grievous sin. But he loved the Lord. And what comes time after time of his being called out in sin is repentance. Confession. Which wasn't the case with Saul. He loved the Lord, and it, and it brings to mind this theme of the book of First and Second Samuel that is echoing through all of its pages. And it's a prayer at the very beginning of the book by this woman who is now pregnant with her first child. Her name is Hannah, and she gives this as a theme for the entire book in her prayer. He, meaning God, will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. That is the theme that echoes through the pages of this book. And here comes David, this little runt, to face the tallest man in the Philistine army named Goliath. And there's no message that resounds more clearly in this story than that. Not by might shall man prevail. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now here we find ourselves where this little runt is all grown up now. He's getting old, and the question comes, what are we going to do without him here? Have you seen the size of these people? They're ginormous. They're strong. They fight with new swords and weaver's beams, whatever that is. People of God are yet again reminded he guards the feet of his faithful ones. The wicked will be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. So what exactly is it that the Lord is calling his people to? What is he calling the nation of Israel to? What is he calling us to, who are also called by his name? What is it that he's calling us to? Well, first you see this theme picked up again in the New Testament, don't you? When Paul tells us that we're saved by Him, not by our own might, we're saved, he says, by grace and not by the works of our hands. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not by might shall man prevail. The one that delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the Philistine. Or you might say, the one that delivered me up to now will also deliver me from the hand of the devil himself. Will deliver me from the hand of the grave. Will give to me eternal life. But then what has he called you to when Jesus says, 
come, follow me. What is he asking you to do? Well, he's called you into battle, not against physical giants, but monsters, spiritual monsters, cosmic powers, antagonizers, and accusers who hurl flaming darts at you all day through temptation. Ephesians 6, 11 to 18, just a few chapters later, Paul says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil. And having done all, done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Yep, one sermon. Giants and demons. Lucky day, right? Sounds scary. Sounds terrifying actually if you think about it so let me get this straight an enemy that is around me actually enemies plural are there that i can't see and their agenda is to drag me to hell and to accomplish this they plot and scheme daily to contrive ways that i might deny christ who is my only means of salvation and trust in my own hand to save me. Yep. Don't get me wrong. It's great that I have salvation by grace. But did Christ then save me by grace and then give me these tiny little instructions here in the first few verses of chapter 6 of Ephesians to tell me, then what? And he's just going to drop the bomb on me that, hey, there's invisible enemies, good luck. Put on a helmet of salvation, take the sword of the Spirit, take the belt of, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, take all that, and uh, good luck. Is that it? Is that, that all I've got? Does anyone know where to find the breastplate of righteousness? You got one hiding under your bed somewhere that we're supposed to put on? If so, how do I put it on in the morning? It may be that you're asking something similar this morning. Maybe you're saying, I see sin and temptation all around me, but I don't know how to resist it. I don't know what to do now. I see it. I see the world heading off a cliff into darkness. I don't know what to do about that. Even if I am being dragged along behind it, I don't know really what to do about that now. How do I even fight against it? And perhaps you might even live in fear in thinking, what, what do I do 
after, what happens after death? Am I sure, as I stand here right now, am I positive that there's nothing that happens after this? That we just die and then that's it? We're just worm food? That's, that's the whole reason we're here? That's it. There's no aim or no purpose to it, any of it? Really? Am I certain about that? And if I'm not certain about it, what then happens? And then maybe there's this fear that comes along after where you think to yourself, oh no. But what does happen after this? And what answers do I have? And, and, and what am I going to do about it? What is it that Paul is telling you here? It might surprise you to know that Paul did not sit down and maybe look at a Roman soldier or think to himself, what would be a good metaphor for the spiritual fight that we're in? And he puts down breastplate of righteousness. That's good. I, I, I like that one. And then a belt of truth. I, I belt of truth. So he puts that one down. He, helmet, helmet of salvation. I like that one. He puts down the helmet of salvation there. When the prophet Isaiah described the Messiah who was to come in the world, this is how he described him. Isaiah 11.5 Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, or truth, the belt of his loins. You've heard that one before. Isaiah 59.17 He put on righteousness as a breastplate. You heard that one? And a helmet of salvation on his head. You've heard that one too. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, or the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, what Paul is calling Christians to do here is not wake up in the morning and find some metaphorical breastplate and put it on you. Now that you've been saved by grace, now work as though it depended on you. That's not what he's telling you to do. He's telling you get up in the morning, now that you have been saved by grace, and put on the same armor that Jesus used to defeat the giants of the past. Satan, death, hell. How do I do that? Well, I get up in the morning, and he says, praying at all times in the Spirit, asking Jesus for help. He wants you to cling tightly to the Word of God as the source of truth for temptation that is around you. How do I understand what it is that I'm looking at in this world? It's what the sword, the Spirit, actually is. He says it's the Word of God. It helps you to see the world clearly as it's meant to be seen. But what is He calling you to do? To trust that Christ's righteousness, that His activity, that His fight against the giants is enough for me. That his war against death, that his war against sin, that the righteousness that he has provided is enough for me so I can wear it like a garment. I can put it on like it's mine. Like it belongs to me. Because he has taken the righteous life that he lived and he has given it to me. 
by grace. You see, the, the fight against the spiritual armies that are coming against you isn't a fight that you can win by yourself. It's not a fight that you were ever equipped to do. The fight is something He did. He's the one that went into battle with Satan and all of the spiritual forces of darkness. He's the one that fought against the power of the grave and rose victorious over it. Now He gives you His armor to wear like a garment. As though it were yours. The song that we sang earlier is true. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. What is He calling you to? He's calling you to depend and trust. That's what He's calling you to. He wants your life of monster fighting not to be one where you rely on your own smarts and your own savvy and your own know-how to get by. The Gospel is not saying to you, simply be a good person and that'll be good enough. He's not telling you that when you get to heaven and there's a, there's a, judge, a panel of, of, of judgment that's waiting for you and you're standing there and you're, you're trying to give an account for your life and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? He does not expect you to answer. I've basically been a good person. Wrong answer. If the standard of getting to heaven or having eternal life was compared to the person sitting next to you, depending on who that person is, it might be okay. You might look at the person next to you and say, I'm better than she is. But what if the standard was God's holiness? Let's assume for just a second that God is true, that there is really a God and He is holy, and you are measured up against His holiness. Would you make it then? None of us would. He's not asking you to be a good person, and it'll be good enough. When my kids go to bed, they're trusting that I'm locking the doors. They're trusting that I'm checking the closets, that I know what's under the beds, that I'm employing measures to keep them safe. They're having to trust me when they close their eyes in sleep. And similar, what Jesus is calling you to in a lifetime of following Him is dependence and trust in His righteousness as your only hope. It's with humility that you come to Him and you say, if not for Jesus, all of these monsters and giants would devour me in a heartbeat. Because that's the reality. Brothers and sisters, we're called to face spiritual giants who are laying traps of temptation at every turn. But you understand what's being promised to you in the gospel is that the Savior who has delivered you from eternal damnation, the hand or the paw of the grave, also has the power to keep you 
You get that? Your battle is one of trust. It's one of dependence. And I promise you, at every turn, you are going to be tempted to trust in your own power and authority. That is how the godless do it. Well, I trust that I will basically be a good person and that my life will be a legacy for those that come after me. But Christ is coming in with the gospel and saying, I'm telling you different. That at the end of this, there is eternity at, in the balance. And who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your own strength and your own might? Or are you going to trust me? So trust means, if you're trusting in Jesus, it means then confessing your sin out of a heart that is repentant versus just silently making peace with sin and trying to do better the next time. Dependence is a heartfelt realization that without Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but because of Him, you have a treasure that surpasses anything else that could ever, ever be offered to you. And giving up everything, I would rather have Jesus. You can imagine what real dependence like that will do to a person when they come to see and truly depend on Christ as their sole means of righteousness. It will change the way you parent. No more will I be wrapped in this false sense that parenting means presenting myself as perfect in front of my child. Gospel parenting is actually the opposite of that. It's actually saying, you know, Jesus, who I'm telling you about, I need him too. It will change the way you relate to your spouse. Jesus doesn't call you to a lifetime of dominating your spouse or undermining and changing and manipulating your spouse. But husbands are called to die for their wives, to love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You don't think that changes the relationship of the marriage? When all of a sudden the husband is wanting to die for his wife? To love her as Christ loved the church? Changes the way you relate to one another. Changes the way you see the temptations that are laid for you every day. Or when you watch the news, or when you look at the, the circumstances of the world, and everybody is burning with hopelessness changes your outlook not to one of despair but one of sorrow yet always rejoicing it changes the way you sing it changes the way you pray it changes the way you read scripture amazing grace how sweet the sound brings tears to your eyes now because you understand what grace is and what is being talked about there and so many Christians even are wrapped up in this cocoon of conservatism. You walk into a church, you go, that's just going to be amazing. Like you're still in seventh grade and you're embarrassed by what people will think if you're singing. But then you go to the Alabama game and you got your chest painted. You're singing Dixieland Delight. 
That's crazy. This is your Savior that you're singing about. When one comes to truly trust in Christ, there is a heart level change. A light that comes on where you realize the hopelessness of what you were pursuing and the life that now is given to you in Christ. There's an outward change. There's a joy that's never been there before now. Friends, what God is calling you to is a lifetime of spiritual warfare. But the promise that comes on the back end of that is that He who delivered you from death and hell and eternal damnation is also able to deliver you from the temptations that you face daily. The sadnesses, the sorrows, the hurts, the fears. That He's also with you in that. So what is He calling you to do if that's the promise? Trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you would give us help. Pray for the hearts and minds of the people in this room and particularly for those that are lost. They may have come to a realization that their life is currently purposeless. I pray that as your word is preached and read and sung and heard and prayed and that a light would go off. Only you can remove scales. Only you can bring repentance. So I pray that you would. I pray that you would soften all of our hearts. For those of us like we all do, struggling through temptation. Confessing our sins, knowing, feeling guilty and repenting and wanting to turn and, and release all of those things, those addictions, and, and yet finding so often guilt that comes back time and again. Pray that you would Help us to trust. To know that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That it was, it was only Christ who was able to live so perfectly is to bring us all with Him into eternity. Pray that you would relieve us of the burden of our own efforts and instead put our trust squarely on the shoulders of Christ who is able to deliver. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.